You may be seated. This is going to be one of those days. That, uh, that is my microphone making the, the weird sounds there. So I'm going to try to reposition it so it doesn't do that. But uh, I don't know. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles. We're continuing our way through the text this morning. Uh, we need to be in Romans chapter 4. And we also need to be in Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews, I beg your pardon, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. Uh, we're going to lay Hebrews chapter 6 alongside Romans uh, chapter 5. And so I invite you, this is why we hand out the bulletins. We want you to know what's happening in our church and when, but we also want you to have something that you can write notes on and shred and tear up and use for bookmarks if you need to. And so we uh, are going to be looking at those two passages. So go ahead and mark Hebrews, find your way to Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verses 9 and following. And then also we're going to be continuing our way through uh, Romans chapter 5. We saw last time that as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ, we've been given three things, peace, grace, and hope, hope in the glory of God, hope in God's glory. And really what we see in Romans chapter 5, after those initial statements are made there in verses 1 to 2, Everything that follows all the way down to verse 11 in, in Romans 5 is seeking to emphasize that hope and why we can have that hope and how to have that hope. And so that's what we're going to be looking at over the next two, three weeks uh, starting today. And so the, the theme that I've chosen for these messages, as fall is kind of slowly arriving and the cooler temperatures are slowly arriving, what I want you to have in your mind as fall rolls in is that God is calling us to keep our hope hot. Keep our hope hot. And that's what verses, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11 are all about. Keeping our hope in Christ and in the glory of God, keeping that hot. And so before we dig in this morning, let's just pause for a moment and ask God to help us, and then, and then we'll start to look at the text. And so if you would, bow with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross. We know, Lord, that we are saved fully, completely, for all eternity, based on a fully accomplished act that Jesus did on our behalf 2,000 years ago. But Lord, all too often, we tend to think that salvation is a matter of looking backwards at what has been done, and as a result of that, we neglect to look forwards with certainty in what you have yet to do. Our prayer this morning, Lord, is that as we understand biblical faith and as we understand what it is you are doing in the hearts of your people through your word, that we would not have a truncated faith, but a fully formed faith that looks forward to the hope of glory. Do that in us this morning, we pray, by your word, through your spirit, to the praise of the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Recently, I was watching a very fascinating show. I'm sure some of you may have seen it. It's called Mighty Ships. Uh, they generally look at cruise ships, but they look at other ships as well. I don't know why I'm so fascinated by this show, but uh, there's this one episode where they detail a diamond mining ship that is trying to scoop up muck off of the coast of Africa. It starts off this way, attention-grabbing line, at an undisclosed location. A De Beers mining ship is at work. 
And you're like, wow, that's, uh, that's pretty intense. But when you stop to think about it, you know why they're saying that. Uh, there are pirates, and it's off the coast of Africa. And so if the pirates knew where the ship was, obviously they would try to attack the ship. And at any given moment, day by day, they're scooping up as much as a million dollars of diamonds off of the bottom of the ocean floor. You see, all through South Africa, the various countries that make up the southern portion of that continent, the rivers are constantly running, and diamonds, the, the, that part of the world is rich in diamonds. Diamonds are being swept downstream by all of these rivers, and they're being dumped in the ocean. So just a couple of kilometers off of the coast, De Beers has manufactured this massive ship that lowers a they call it a crawler. It's a, a dredging machine that, that works its way along the bottom of the ocean floor, and it pumps up all of the muck and all of the clay and all of the debris off of the ocean floor. And what's fascinating to me is the process that all of this mud is, is taken through in order to sift it down to the diamond. For every diamond that is found, as much as 20 tons of mud is sifted. You might be wondering to yourself, how in the world can they sift through all that mud to get down to the diamond? It's a multi-stage process. It begins, obviously, with just basic sifting. They go and they put all this stuff into a machine, and it just violently shakes, and it kind of you know, makes all the mud and all the diamonds kind of sift out into different parts. And then everything that's uh, too too large to be a diamond, it's just discarded. And everything that's smaller, the gravel and the silt and the potentially the diamonds, it falls through this sifting machine. From there, it goes into a crusher in which you have these bowling ball-sized steel ball bearings that are rolling around inside of a giant drum, and they put all of this gravel, all of this rock into this drum where it is pounded mercilessly over and over and over again in order to break it up into even smaller pieces. And from there, those powdered particles are then taken over to a cyclone where it's then violently spun around and the, the heavier stuff goes to the top and the lighter stuff stays at the bottom. And diamonds are dense, being the hardest material in the world, and so they naturally spin to the top. Everything that stays at the bottom of this, this centrifuge, the cyclone, is discarded, and the material at the top is then further processed. It's put into a vat of acid in which it is then burned. All of the impurities are burned and melted away, and then it's taken back to another cyclone where it's spun again. And then it is sifted for a final time. All of the debris is filtered out, and it goes into one last machine, an x-ray machine, where it is bombarded with high radiation. And the reason for that is because a diamond will glitter, even if it's not cut, even if it's not polished. It shows up on that x-ray machine. See, that's all really interesting, Pastor Josh. What in the world does that have to do with Romans chapter 5? God's desire for you is that you would shine like a diamond. But did you know that in order for diamonds to shine, they have to be cut and they have to be polished? And though you may never have considered this before, in order for you to shine the way God wants you to shine, He has to take you through a refining process. You can look at all of the different steps involved in helping diamonds come to the surface, and you see all of that, and you might say to yourself, if you've ever walked with God through a difficult season of sanctification, I really wish my life was more like that than what I'm actually going through. This is 
common to all of us who have walked with God at some point in time. We've all been through this process of sanctification, and this is reiterated over and over and over again throughout the Scriptures. Isaiah chapter 28, don't flip there, but Isaiah says, God speaking through the prophet says that he is going to sift and refine his people, and the metaphor, the analogy that is used is the analogy of crushing grain and rolling wheels over it and sledging it and threshing it to separate the wheat from the chaff. That is the process that is there. In Matthew chapter 3, this is reiterated. John the Baptist talking about Jesus. When Jesus is getting ready to make his grand appearance and, and John the Baptist is about to baptize him, John the Baptist talks about Jesus, our Savior, in this way. He says, quote, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And say, wow, that sounds like something else. That is what it is to walk with your Savior. And this has worked its way out practically in a number of different saints throughout the New Testament. Perhaps the most famous, the Apostle Peter, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, before his crucifixion the next day, Jesus speaks to Peter. Peter says, I'll never leave you. I'm confident. I'll stay with you to the end, even if I have to die. And Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So understand, dear brothers and sisters, what we're talking about in the Christian life, walking with Jesus, is a process of sanctification in which it is God's desire to cut you and me, to cut out the pride, to cut out the selfishness, the narcissism, to create in us the character, to form in us the life of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 5. You're going to read this and you're going to think, I don't know how I feel about this. And my prayer for you, this is the crux of the matter. We're talking about having hope. We're talking about having a certain confidence that what Christ has begun in us, he will bring it to completion. And what I offer to you today by way of proposition is this, your hope and keeping that hope hot will require that you choose to embrace the fiery furnace of sanctification, the bitter crushing of threshing, the winnowing of Jesus Christ. We don't like that. We don't like to go through that process. And of course, none of us wants to embrace pain just for the sake of pain. But what the Scriptures are telling us today is that our hope will lead us to embracing that pain and on the other side of that process, our hope will be strengthened. So if we would fire the embers of our hope and keep our hope in God hot, we must choose to embrace the process of sanctification. Look with me. Romans chapter 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 2. We discussed verse 2 last week. And what I want to do is just show you the process that Paul is working his way through, and then I want to take you for a moment over to Hebrews. In, chapter two, in, in verse 2 of chapter 5, the apostle Paul says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and he makes this statement, we rejoice, that is, we worship, that is, we praise God with gladness in the hope of the glory of God. And we looked last time how this hope is grounded in the moral certainty of God. He is going to bring to completion what he has started. He is going to finish the good work in us. And what is that good work? 
to bring us to a place of glory that He will give to us so that we can behold His glory. I shared with you last week that my hope, my fervent hope, was that after the Queen's funeral, that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau would declare a tax holiday to honor her passing. Well, I was quite disappointed in that hope. Any of you share that disappointment with me? No? Oh, Judy. Wow, thank you, Judy. I didn't think you guys had much hope in that. I didn't either. I'm just being silly. But where we will speak of the certainty of government to continue to tax us, Christians can also speak of the certainty, and it is a far greater certainty, of God to bring us to glory. Paul says we rejoice in that. But then he makes this next statement. And you and I, we hear that, yes, God is going to bring us to glory. Life is going to be great. God is going to bless us. We're going to know nothing but happy times. We're just going to go through life without a care in the world, worshiping God and enjoying him. And Paul says we're rejoicing in the hope of that glory. So you'd expect him to say, yes, it's all going to turn out well. There's never going to be any problems. Everything is going to be great. He makes this contrary statement. We're rejoicing in the hope of glory, but even more than that, more than rejoicing in the hope of glory, he says, we're rejoicing in suffering. Say, whoa, wait a second. We're talking about glory. And I remember last week, Pastor Josh went on to say it's something so beautiful that it is indescribable and that scriptures don't try to describe it for us because it is beyond our comprehension, this side of heaven. We have to see it to fully appreciate it. And what the Bible is telling us is that the process that God is going to use to get us there will require an embrace of suffering. Now, look closely at the verse. Look at what it says. Verse 2, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of glory. Verse 3, more than that, more than rejoicing in the hope of glory, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So we're rejoicing in hope of glory And that leads us to rejoicing and worshiping and praising God in our sufferings. And the outcome of all of that is that we know we'll have an even greater hope. Say, I don't know about that, Pastor Josh. Flip with me now. I want you to go quickly. Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. The author of Hebrews writes this. He says, though we speak in this way, he's talking to this group of Jews living in Jerusalem. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He says, for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. They're still serving the Lord. They're still serving the saints. Verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And I want you to just take your pencil and underline it, the full assurance of hope, the full assurance. The reason why the author of Hebrews is so sure that his readers 
are not going to be among the apostates is that they have not only been loving servants for God's sake in the past, but that they are still continuing to serve the church. So I hope this morning as we look at this passage, one of the things that will immediately stick in your mind is perseverance. It just jumps right out at you. And at the end of verse 10, he says, you continue to do this. So you show, you show your love in serving the saints, both in the past and in continuing to do so in the, presence, in the present. So their religious experience then was not a flash-in-the-pan decision. It wasn't that they just prayed some prayer 30 years ago at VBS. It wasn't that they went to a uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman concert. It's making a comeback, by the way. Some of you are like, whoa, Stephen Curtis Chapman, that was when I was a kid. Uh, yes, I, I heard the girls this week listening to Stephen Curtis Chapman. Somebody had a, a Walkman and they were playing it after school, or an iPod, beg your pardon, I, iPod. <laughs> and they were playing that song, Saddle Up Your Horses. You, you, some of you older saints here that grew up in the 90s, you've heard that song. And I was like so flummoxed. I was like, you guys are listening to the, this music from like the early 90s. They're like, yeah, isn't it great? And I was like, yeah, that is really great <laughs> on so many levels. So, but the author of Hebrews here is saying that, you know, when it comes to walking with God, he's confident with their salvation because it wasn't a, fla- a flash in the pan decision that was made during VBS or during a Stephen Curtis Chapman uh, music concert or, or some kind of a evangelistic crusade or revival. They were continuing daily serving the saints. They were still doing that at the present time of the writing of the book of Hebrews. And that's why he feels so sure of their salvation. But then comes this admonition in verse 11. He says in verse 11 and verse 12 that they need to continue to press on in what they're doing and not become sluggish. And if you look, he says, we desire, verse 11, we desire each one of you to continue showing the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So one of the things we see here is that they are stoking their hope by continuing to love and continuing to serve the saints. In other words, with all the zeal that they had in the past, that enabled them in the past to work for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, with all of that same zeal, they're keeping on pursuing the full assurance of hope all the way to the end. So there is, from this verse, we take this conclusion, there is no fight, no quest, no challenge, no battle more important than continuing every day to keep our hope hot. What is the connection, pastor, between hope and faith? And this is a question I got probably a half a dozen emails from you last week when we began to introduce this topic. What is the real difference? Like, what is faith versus what is hope? What, you know, what, are the, what is the difference between these two things, and how are they connected? And so we need to look at it. Is there a difference? Is there a difference? And I would suggest that there is a difference, but that these ideas are congruent. Faith is the larger term, okay? Faith is this larger concept. And at the same time, I can say that hope is a necessary part of biblical faith. Hope is that part of faith which focuses on the future. 
In biblical terms, when faith is directed to the future, then you can call it hope. That's what it is. Faith can focus on the past, and faith can focus on the present, and at the same time, it isn't wrong to say that faith looks to the future. But whenever the authors of Scripture, under the inspiration of God, want us to just keep our eyes purely on the future, they'll use this term hope. So I'll say to you that faith is the larger term, and it includes hope, but hope is the narrower term that is oriented towards the future, okay? And you can see this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It's the closest definition to faith that we find anywhere in the Bible, and in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And it is the conviction of things that are not seen. Faith assures us of a future that we're desiring. Faith is a conviction of things that we cannot see with our eyes. And it's not just forward-looking. For example, in just two verses after verse 1 of Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews says, By faith we understand that the world was created by the Word of God. Nobody here was alive on the first day of creation. But we know God created because He told us He did. And we believe that by faith. We understand how God has worked in the past to create you and I as His image bearers. And we know that His desire is for us to be restored to the fullness of the Imago Dei, the image of God, which we have corrupted through our sin. We know what was intended by faith, but the narrower term, hope, looks to the future. If this is what we understand has been accomplished in the past, we can be certain of what is coming next. That's the idea here. So faith is more than just looking backwards. It includes looking forwards. But when the authors of Scripture and God Himself wants us to keep the future in, our, in the forefront of our viewpoint, our, our focus on the future, they will use this term, hope. Now, why is that important? Without hope, if your faith looks only backwards, it is not biblical. And if you're only looking backwards without having a hope for the future, grounded in Scripture, you are in danger of apostasy. Continuing in Hebrews chapter 6, I'm not sure what your Bible looks like, but for my Bible, i got to flip the page. I invite you to go backwards just for a second, and I want you to pick it up in verse 4. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. The author of the book of Hebrews is encountering people who have abandoned the faith as a result of a deficient hope. Look at what he says. Verse 4, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and of the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt." He's saying when you walk away from the faith, when you apostatize, it's impossible to bring you back. And he makes this statement, land, verse 
7, land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. This is a passage of judgment for falling away from the faith. And then in the very next verse, verse 9, he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, he says, we are sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, a faith that tasted of these things, a faith that was rooted in the past, that in the momentary present embraced these sorts of things. It wasn't a sustaining faith. It wasn't a saving faith. It wasn't a faith that it could actually bring about salvation. But in this group of people to whom the author of Hebrews is writing, he knows for sure that their faith is real because it wasn't a flash in the pan decision that was made in VBS 35 years ago. It wasn't a one-time sort of emotional high they had at some sort of Christian music concert. It was a decision to follow Christ through loving Him and loving His people and serving the church. And they say, we've seen that. So we know that your faith is legitimate. And he goes on and he says then, verse 11, and here's what we desire, that you keep stoking your faith and keeping it hot that you keep on pressing on to the full assurance of hope to the end. Now, this is the point of what the author of Hebrews is saying. Why belabor this point? Why why go to such great lengths? I could say to you today, then, knowing that hope is a part of biblical faith, I I could almost just rewrite the solas for you. You know the solas from the Reformation? We're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. You know, I could do all of that, right? How about we try this? We are not merely saved by grace through faith, if we define faith down as to simply looking back at the cross and what Jesus did for us there. We are not merely saved by grace through faith. To put it a different way, we are saved by grace through hope. We sang this song a little while ago, hoping in Christ. Well, a living hope is Christ. And that's what I think Paul is getting at here in Romans. It's not merely a matter of looking backwards to what God has done. It includes that, but it is also, and it must include, a looking forwards to the future hope and firing that hope. And so the question then is, how do we fire that hope? How do we keep that hope hot? And Paul tells us in Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings. That is, we walk into the trials and the tribulations of this life knowing that God is working this sanctifying power in us to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus. Dear ones, this idea is not a part of biblical faith. It's a part of the American dream, and it's a false gospel that we can believe in Jesus and have a happy, uh, just go-lucky life that never knows any hardship, that never knows any difficulty. There is no Christian who desires to live a godly life who will escape persecution. How do you know that? 
That's a pretty bold statement, Pastor Josh. It comes from Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy says, You, Timothy, have followed my teaching and my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings that happened to me. And he goes on, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. And he says, Which persecution I endured. So he's saying to Timothy, you have studied my life, you've watched me go through all of these persecutions, and you've seen me endure those persecutions. And then he makes this promise, one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And do you know why that's a great promise? Because when God brings that persecution and those trials and those difficulties into our life, He has a great purpose in it. He's refining us and cutting us like diamonds to look more and more like Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5, it says, We rejoice, we worship, we give glory to God, however you want to define or translate that word in our sufferings, not because we desire suffering for suffering's sake, no, because we have a knowledge of what God is using those sufferings for. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing, he says, that suffering produces endurance. Many, many, many years ago, we preached through the book of James. And of course, if you've ever read the book of James, the very second verse of it, it says, count it all joy, my brothers. When you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And he goes on to say, let it have its full effect that the man of God may be perfect and complete. Growing in endurance is a necessary part of growing to be like Christ. Now, what does this word endurance mean? It's Greek word hupomone. It literally means bearing up under I mean, if you want a word picture here, you could say it's kind of like a power lifter who's getting ready to squat a heavy load. And so we could go on at length and say, okay, well, this is what endurance is. It's learning how to bear up under heavier and heavier and heavier loads. It's like learning how to, you know, power squat heavier and heavier weights. But of course, it's an analogy. We apply it to the Christian life and say, okay, what does that look like? What does it look like to bear heavier and heavier loads as a Christian? For most of us, when we encounter trials, we say, oh, God, let this be one and done. We pray, oh, Father, let this sickness pass from me. We say, oh, God, I'm in this incredible trial right now. I can't wait to see the end of it. But a real understanding of endurance is not that it is a flash-in-the-pan momentary trial. A real understanding of endurance, how it is properly translated, is endurance is something that we are capable of sustaining over a long period of time. Yes, it means bearing up under something that is heavy, but it means doing so for great lengths of time. So often we approach our Christian faith, and I've said this many times, it's It's the culture that is influencing our view of our spirituality. We get in our car, we're hungry, we need a happy meal from McDonald's. We're going to get in the drive-thru, we're going to wait three to five minutes tops, we're going to tell the guy what we want, then we're going to wait another minute or two, we're going to swipe our card on the fancy machine, 
It's going to beep that sound of joy, letting us know we actually get to keep the food they're about to hand us. And then they give it to us, and we munch on it while we drive away. Total commitment, total time involved, five to ten minutes. And that's how we all too often are approaching our walk with Christ as members of his body. I want to go into church. I want to show up at five after. I want to be there right up until the last moment when they're about to pray and close it out, and then I want to get out those doors and get on with the rest of my day. I want it fast. I want it convenient, and I don't want any fuss, no muss, no fuss. I want to be in and out. Brothers and sisters, walking with Christ means loving his body. Walking with Christ means you're going to sooner or later encounter trials and tribulations, and you're going to need your brothers and sisters to walk with you through that. And whether you're going through it or not, someone in this room is, and you're called to help them bear that load. How will you do that if you don't know who they are or what they're going through? And how will you ever understand that if you don't come at a period in time in which you can have a conversation with these people? We're here to worship the Lord. We're here to lift up his name. The focus is on Christ. But understand, we are called to being together as a body, not merely to be spectators at an event. It's going to require participation. I heard one fellow just this last week say, I don't like the word participation. I prefer participation. Just by sitting here in the pews, you think you're participating. There's more, more, more to it than just sitting. Participation. This will result in character. Long-term obedience in the same direction will produce a particular character in your life. If you can forsake this mistaken notion of a drive through happy meal Christianity, if you can forsake this notion that church is like a Walmart just doling out spiritual goods and services at your convenience, and if you can endure suffering together with the people of the Lord, there's a character that comes as a result of it. The text tells us, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces this hope. So what kind of character is it that we need to further fire our hope and keep it hot? This character is nothing less than Christ in us. The Apostle Peter says that we will partake of the divine nature of God through the promises of God, And this needs to happen over and over again until we become, as the Apostle Paul says to the church in Galatia, we become people who have, quote, Christ formed in us. Jesus was confronted as he was going about his ministry. And the Pharisees came to him. They said, you need to leave. Haven't you heard? Herod is upset with you. Herod, the guy who has the power to kill you. And you know what Jesus' response to that was? He says, tell that fox. He says, tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and I perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I'll finish my course. He's not running. 
He's not leaving. He's continuing to walk in faithfulness to his heavenly Father. And he's not for one second bowed down or concerned with what Herod thinks. Is Christ formed in you? How many of us can honestly say we are more interested in what the Father thinks of us and how we live our lives than in what the world says about us? That was clearly Christ's attitude. Is it yours? We're looking for this character to be formed in us. And if I could illustrate it, I would illustrate it this way. You're aware, obviously, that football season is upon us. You laugh, and I, I don't mean this to be funny, but I find always in sports useful analogies by which we can understand the walk that we have been called to with Christ. I want you to imagine for a second you're on a college football team. You see, I'm staying away from the Cowboys because I don't want to get too wrapped up in that. So we're going to talk about college football instead. I want you to imagine for a second that you're a part of a college football team and you have experienced over the first two years of your career nothing but disappointment, defeat. The college administration has fired the coach. They brought in a new coach and he has come in and on day one he's rolled out new offense, new defense, new offensive coordinator, new defensive coordinator. We're going to do things differently around here, boys. And he implements a whole different training regimen. Well, you're hopeful because you know for sure the last administration, you couldn't win with them. You're not sure whether or not you can win with this new administration, but why not? Give it a try. You're hopeful that your career will turn around and that maybe your team will improve and you can put some numbers up and hopefully your dream, your dream ultimately is to be drafted in the NFL at some point. And so you go to work. You apply yourself. You go to two-a-days. You train throughout the summer. You go to training camp and on and on it goes. And eventually you meet your first opponent and this is the real moment of testing. You're not sure if it's going to work, but you're going to try it. And so you do. And lo and behold, after a grueling game, you win. It worked. Okay. Well, maybe this, this team that we encountered for the first time on the field, they were just having a bad day. It is the start of the season. We're all still trying to figure ourselves out. Maybe we just got lucky. You go the next week, you win. You go the next week, you win, and you win, and you win, and you keep winning. And as you continue winning, you grow in your confidence. You believe that indeed this person is going to carry you all the way through, that if you follow the coach, if you follow what he's telling you, his offensive plan, his defensive plan, his training regimen, all these things are going to work together. And as you grow in confidence over time, you come up against those really difficult opponents. You know it's going to be a fight, but you come to a place where you believe, you know what, I can actually overcome this challenge because I have overcome challenges in the past. And for every challenge I faced, by following my leader, he has taken me through it. And every time you've successfully come through it, character has been formed in such a way that you have a greater confidence and a greater belief in your leaders to lead you through the fray. And that's the character that Paul is alluding to here. More and more as we enter into these persecutions and struggles, the goal is not that we would have an easy time of it, just in the same way that no self-respecting football player would say, my goal for practice today is that my coach would roll out a lazy boy recliner and a Twinkie and a Coca-Cola and I can just sit there in the beautiful sun and slurp up this sugary goodness. Now, that's my dream. <laughs> but I'm not out to win any football games, now am I? 
In the 80s, of course, there was this great push to get in shape. That all kind of went away through the 90s, but it's back. Now we've got gyms opening up everywhere. We've got a purple gym up the hill here. They'll charge you $10, and you start to hear these mantras again. No pain, no gain. Where did I first hear that? Decades ago. If we would see success, we must embrace the hardship that leads to it. We're not going into hardship for the sake of hardship. We're going into it knowing that God has a grand purpose on the far side of it. And that is what he has called us to. I just want to step back for a second and share a testimony with you. This last week, I was asked to coffee by another pastor, not from this town. I had to travel a little bit to go see him. And we sat down, and he, he wanted to pick my brain on a few things. And when we sat down, he said to me, you know, I'm really nervous about the fall. I'm really nervous about the arrival of flu season. And I'm concerned what the government is going to do in terms of regulations and restrictions on the churches. I said, okay, why are you concerned about this? And his statement to me was, he says, Josh, I, uh, I don't think our church financially can survive another shutdown. He says, I understood you guys stayed open during the pandemic, and I want to I wanna hear your thoughts on all of these things. And we got to talking, and uh, all of his questions, and I love this brother, I understand his concern. But all of his questions were oriented towards a drop in tithes, a dip in finances, and the pressure that he was feeling was that he needed to keep his church open or else his church would financially fold. And I listened to him for a long time, and I just said, you know, I, uh, I can't help but wonder if perhaps your focus is entirely wrong. Is your desire to have a worship service so that you can continue to collect an offering? Or is your desire to worship Jesus Christ? He's not a means to financial stability. He is the glory. It's a weird conversation because we're coming at it from radically different premises with different moral uh, concerns. We both want the same thing. We want to keep our churches open in the fall. But I don't care whether or not I'm hit with a ticket. You know, the government can levy enough tickets against you to where it doesn't matter how great your offering is, you're going to be broke paying fines. You, you see, I understand you're in a hard spot, but sooner or later we have to wrestle with why are we here and why are we doing this in the first place? And as he and I talked, I went home from that conversation. I, I just told him, I'll pray for you. Like, I, your desire should really be to enjoy and delight in the glory of the Lord. And so I've been laying Hebrews 6 alongside Romans 5. But as we continue in our sermon this morning, as we come to an end here, I thought I'd just read to you this passage from chapter 10. that has been a mainstay to me throughout the pandemic. In Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 24, the author of Hebrews says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 
And if you recall from what he's just said in Hebrews chapter 6, we got to go on to love and good works in order to fire our hope, to keep our hope hot. That's now he's saying it here. And this is a church that's under persecution. They've been given every reason under the sun to stop gathering for worship. But they continue on. And the author of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir one up Stir one another up to love and good works. And he makes this statement, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And if you go back and you look at all the different prophecies that Jesus gives concerning the day of the Lord, he says there's going to be earthquakes, and there's going to be famines, and there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And you know what else he says? He says there's going to be pestilences. So we can't say when we read this passage from Hebrews that God, who is the author of all Scripture, didn't have pestilences in mind when he said we have to continue gathering to worship. He saw all, he foresees all, he knows all, and he says, gather, worship, to encourage one another, and all the more so as you see that day drawing near, to keep our hope hot. That's not stated explicitly here, but we know that's the case. As I was reflecting on that this week, do you know when I really began to cherish this Bible verse? About 13 years ago, when I was a father of a young child. And my young child, unconsciously, was just an absolute obstacle for me to get to church on Sunday morning. I love my daughter. I love all my kids. You know, there's just something, and I think it's unconscious, but Satan just comes up with all sorts of things to keep you from getting to church and worshiping him, worshiping God, not Satan. She would invariably on Sunday morning be healthy all week long, but then on Sunday morning, blow out in her diaper. And it's like, oh my goodness, now we have to get her in the bath. We've got to clean this whole mess up. We've got to get her ready to go. Invariably on Sunday morning, we had two kids. Invariably on Sunday morning, one of them is going to be having a meltdown. Invariably on a Sunday morning, one of our children has made off with the car keys and hidden them somewhere for fun. Oh, let's play hide and seek, mom and dad. And we were committed to going to church. It was hard. There was no pandemic. I didn't need a pandemic to have obstacles in my life. I had children. They presented all kinds of obstacles and in their own right. And I'm not saying this in any way to belittle my kids. I love my kids. You know that. But in the heart of every single one of us, from the moment we are born, there is a sin nature that is hostile and inclined against finding delight and joy and worshiping God. And so my wife and I sat down. I was like, look, I have to go to church early. At this time, we're church planters. I got to set up chairs. I got to get the gymnasium ready. I got to set up sound equipment. I got to do all this stuff. And you have to be the one to get the kids there. And, and in a small church, there's only so many volunteers to do Sunday school. And my wife was the Sunday school coordinator. And it's like, you got to be there to make sure things are set up for Sunday school. And, and the kids are continuously getting in our way. And they're the ones we're seeking to serve to the glory of the Lord. And what it boiled down to was this. We're going to have to just get up really, really early. 
And we're going to have to allow time for every strange and extraordinary contingency. And what it's going to look like for us is that we're either going to be an hour early to church when no one else is there, or we're going to be right on time. It's going to be one or the other. We're going to go through this battle with our kids, and we're going to be on time to worshiping the Lord, or we're going to not have any problems on this given Sunday, and we're going to be an hour, an hour, 15 minutes early. And I remember talking with my wife one night about it. I said, well, how does it feel to be the wife of a church planter? You don't make hardly any money, and uh, you got to show up an hour to an hour and a half early for church on Sunday with no one else there. And she rocked my world. She said, Jesus is glorious. He sees it all. He knows the struggle you go through. Loving Christ will involve loving his body. It will involve worshiping him. It will involve gathering together. But at the front of it all is a focus on Christ. The Apostle Paul, he concludes our text in Romans, and he says, when we go through all of this, it produces a kind of character. Yeah, a kind of character that will even go to church an hour, hour and a half early just to make sure that we're there with the brothers and sisters to lift up the name of Christ. That's the kind of character that can come as a result of persevering and enduring and going through the hardships and going through the struggles. And I'm not talking about COVID exclusively. I'm talking about something as simple as you're a young parent with a young child and you've got obstacles just in that struggle alone. But we will press on and we will exalt the name of Christ. And as a result of all of that, do you know what comes? Look at this. As Paul concludes, character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. For all the years that I was an hour and a half, two hours early, do you know what happens now on a Sunday morning? When I had young kids, it was a struggle to get out of bed because I was exhausted, because I was up all night the night before with whining and crying and bottle feeding and all the rest. This morning, my, I don't even set my alarm clock on Sunday morning anymore. I used to always need this thing to go off to get my eyes open. I woke up at 5.30 this morning just like normal. Just wake up. There's a character, and I can sleep till like 7 or 8 on any other day of the week, but on Sunday, I just pop up. This is just some weird thing that God has done in my life. It's part of my character now. I just get up early on a Sunday morning to go to church, not by design, but because years and years, this is just how it's happened. I'm not saying it will happen for you, but what I do know is this. For every hour, I'm early to church for the glory of Jesus. You could say, oh, you're not using your time wisely, but you know what? Jesus sees exactly how I'm using my time, and he'll be the final judge of whether it was the right way to spend it or not. It produces hope. C.S. Lewis was ticked off because in his day, there were all kinds of people that were criticizing Christianity, looking at it so from the outside, and he wrote a response. He says, you can't really understand something that you're not inside of. And his response was entitled, Meditations in a Tool Shed. And he made this interesting analogy. He said, I was standing today in a dark tool shed. 
The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. And from where I stood, that beam of light, with the specks of dust floating in the air, was the most striking thing in that place. He says, I saw... Oh, sorry. He said, from where I stood, it was the most striking thing in that place. Everything else was almost pitch black, but I was seeing the beam. I was not seeing things by the beam. And then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes, and instantly the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and I saw no light beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door of the shed green leaves moving on the branches of tree outside and beyond that. Beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, I saw the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. He concludes this way. It is easy to go on all your life giving explanations for why this particular passage does not apply or how this particular miracle is a contradiction of physics But when we come to the end, he says, we are only giving human explanations of religion, love, morality, honor, and all the like without ever having once been inside any one of them. If you do that, you are simply playing games. You must learn not to look at the beam. You must learn to look along the beam. The question that comes is, how does all of these things produce hope of glory? It is supernatural. It is the work of God through the Holy Spirit. You must walk with Jesus into suffering. And then you will learn to see not the beam of light. You will see along that beam to the hope of glory. My prayer for you today, First Baptist Church, is that you would jump in both feet to whatever Christ is calling you to. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you, and we just say thank you for your word. Our prayer this morning, Lord, is that we would walk into suffering in obedience to you. Help us to follow your son in faithfulness. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.